welcome back to the Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And today, a very special guest, we are talking with Helen Patton, the CISO of the Ohio State University. She's got a really pragmatic view of the way you empower people to use technology rather than saying yes or no. Yeah, very interesting background, having come from uh, the private sector, especially big banking, um, to the university level. I thought it was really interesting um, how decentralized and, I guess, the various spaces on a university that we hadn't considered, for example, like the credit card information that's stored in retail sales. Like I hadn't even considered that for universities right. as, a, as an information security um, issue. Anyway, let's let her do the talking. Um, she's a great speaker and has got very clear-eyed vision um, about what the CISO can and should empower um, in higher education systems. So without further ado, Helen Patton. Helen Patton. Hello, Helen. This is George Comedy from Safeguard Cyber. Hello, how are you? All right, how are you? We also have uh, my compatriot here, Ashley Stone. Hi, Helen. Hi, Ashley. How are you? Great. How's it going? It's a beautiful day. Can't complain. Um, okay, so can you uh, tell us about your journey, how you got from uh, information security in the private sector over to the Ohio State University? Yeah, so the journey from from private sector to, to higher ed was um, not necessarily an intentional move. I think that's probably true for most people in security. You see the opportunities come to you and you evaluate them when they do. I was working for a, for a Wall Street bank for 10 years, but I was based out of Columbus, Ohio. I was doing a lot of travel. I had an international team. Um, and... I was, frankly, I was burning out a little bit and I needed for my family and for myself to, to make a change. And it just happens that here in Columbus, Ohio, one of the biggest organizations uh, is the Ohio State University and they had an opening for an information security officer. And it turns out that the person who held the job before me used to work for me and work with me at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. Wow. And so... Through networking, I realized that this opportunity had become available. Um, and so um, applied, and, and that was six years ago, and I've been here ever since. Wow, yes. I'm, I'm sort of constantly amazed and also simultaneously not surprised at how small the world of information security can be. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, managing the information security organization for a large university strikes us as substantially different than uh than doing it for an, an enterprise um can mm -hmm. you speak to some of the either the differences or, or perhaps there are similarities that we, we haven't taken into consideration yeah it's a, so a large university in the united states typically means that you're dealing with a research university not mm -hmm. not only teaching and learning but the research side as well it makes a very significantly different cultural ch cultural change compared to most private sectors. So first of all, 
when you're dealing with a research university, you are dealing with multiple industries all under one roof. So here at the university, we have a hospital. So we've got all the things that would go along with healthcare. Right. We do millions of dollars worth of retail sales every year, not just in terms of textbooks, but also in terms of uh, spirit wear and things of that nature. You can't mm-hmm. be, you can't have a, a Big Ten football team without those kinds of things going on. (laughs) So we do millions of dollars of retail. So um, uh, PCI and all things, you know, retail come in, come into play. We have, right. We have student data. So this then gets into FERPA regulations, which is uh, FERPA, which people outside of higher ed or K through 12 probably don't think too much about, but student privacy and those kinds of things. Because we're dealing with millions of dollars of student loans through the federal government, we are also considered a financial institution and in scope for GLBA regulation. Um, So think all things finance also applies to higher ed. Um, We are a small city. We have people who live here with us. So imagine in the private sector having your customers not only coming into your branches but living in the buildings Mm -hmm. where you work. Um, so, yeah, you know, we, we have to do heating and cooling and life safety and we have our own police force. Um, and from a, from a DHS critical infrastructure perspective, we've got almost all of them here on campus up to and including airports and nuclear reactors. So the scope of what we deal with here is huge in terms of the kinds of data and the kinds of technology that we have on campus. So making a, you know, when you sit in a security conference and they say, think about your crown jewels <laughs> in higher ed. Which it's one? really hard. Which one? Yeah, pick it, right? Um, so that's sort of interesting. The other thing that happens is in, in private sector, there's very much, a, uh, and it varies by industry, of course, but there's very much a top-down command and control kind of thing. If you don't like this, you can leave, Mm -hmm. right? Um, In higher ed, we deal with this concept of academic freedom, and there has been culturally inculcated into the way things work an assumption that researchers should be free from political oversight in the types of research they do and the conclusions they draw from that research. What that means is, I can't tell them what technology to use. I can't tell them to. Um, I can't tell them to do anything. I have to convince them that I, the recommendations I am making in terms of security are in their best interest. Right. So, uh, it, it, lead that, the horse to it, water. Yeah, it's it's more like thinking of us having a community of independent contractors that agree to work together, as opposed to Jamie Dimon saying they'll make it so as it happens. Um, and so culturally that changes the way you approach security and your and your security strategies and frankly your security timelines change as a result. Yeah, that's that's it's all great. well it's all also I think a a much more massive undertaking than when than we had thought. Um we have a lot of customers who deal in compliance and we work with universities for you know things like student records and things like that um and also then we work separately with enterprises it's a strictly information security or cybersecurity um outfit in it and i think 
to the outside population and maybe even to the infosec community at large, um, we fail to consider that universities are multiple information ecosystems. Like I hadn't, yeah. I just hadn't reckoned with the, uh, the PCI and the, and the retail angle. I just, I completely forgot about that, but of course that makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and we also deal with interesting things. So, we're, we happen to be a public university here, um, so we are treated uh, as a state institution. So we are subject to um, the same things that, that impact state and local and federal government. Um, that includes public records requirements and sunshine laws. And so you mm -hmm. get into very interesting conversations when your security strategies in some cases, not all cases, can be made public under those kinds of, of um, things. Our org, our org charts are publicized. Again, we are spending public dollars, and so we have to be able to demonstrate good stewardship of those dollars, and, and that comes into things where, you know, in, in a private sector, if I wanted to protect my my company from outside threat, I may, I may choose not to make my org chart public. Right. I can't do that here. I can't do it. Um, so there's things like that. We also, by the way, have, you know, things like uh, animals and plants and embryos and so on that also need to be protected as well. So there's this the, the concept of, you know, the, the value of data. And when we hear about higher ed in, in the public space, it's a lot of, well, there's a lot of data and that makes them a target. But really, it's the availability risk for me that, that worries me in some cases more um, because if I have some kind of cyber denial of service attack that, that takes down our heating and cooling systems, um, I will have animals and plants which make up multiple years of research mm -hmm. that are at risk. And, and that can be, a, how do you put a value on that? It's really hard to do. Right, especially when that research is attached to, you know, either Department of Agriculture grants or just federal research dollars, right? There's an accountability sure. there. Or, or private public collaboration, right? So mm -hmm. most of the, you know, I, when I talk to my CISOs, CISO partners who are in other industries, I say, do you have a partnership with the university where they're, providing research to you and you especially when you think about medical fields for example there is a lot of collaboration between chemists at universities for example and what they're doing in the r&d space mm -hmm. in medical um well what's the value of that to that company uh, so not only is is the university itself just like any other vendor or any other third party do we become a threat vector that a CISO has to worry about but from a business sense you know what's what's the relative value of the research that we're doing on behalf of private companies is is something that I think gets overlooked quite a bit. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, what role does collaboration play with your in, within your internal teams? There's a there's a lot. So, um, and I'm I don't know that this is unique to higher ed. Um, you know, when we're dealing in security, that we've got a uh, one leg in the IT operations space and we've got one leg in the business operations space. But we don't own a process end-to-end -end really anywhere. So even something as basic as patching a workstation, typically 
the security team isn't the one making decisions about what goes on an endpoint, um, how quickly it's patched, um, whether or not an exception is filed for that patch, those kinds of things. It's a collaboration between us and the IT teams and the business teams in the units that are that are using those devices. Um, so in order to effectively do security across an entire business process, you've got to collaborate with a ton of people. Um, so your ability to collaborate is is really a critical skill for the security team, I think. Um, and sometimes, sometimes, again, culture is a thing. If you've got a senior leadership team that says, you will, it, maybe you don't need to collaborate quite so much. On the <laughs> other hand, um, you know, there's always, I don't care what the organization is, there is always some exception to that mandate. And in those areas is where you've got to collaborate. Cool. Um, yes. Wow. What a, that is a, there's a lot of plates that are spinning. Yes, <laughs> I mean, pick the metaphor, juggling, <laughs> plate spinning, um, coordination. Yeah. Um, great. Well, we've also, I'm going to return to uh, the subject of um, students and professors. Um, it was, uh, mm-hmm. late last year, I think sometime in the fall that, uh, the New York times had this story about the changing role of technology, um, in higher education, mm-hmm. which included, you know, professors mm-hmm. using Slack to send assignments, um, taking mm-hmm. attendance over Twitter. And the professors mm-hmm. who were interviewed in the article were, were very clear about like, well, I have to meet my students where they are. And this is, this is, these are the platforms they use. So I'm adapting to that reality. Um, right. I guess the, the question from an information security perspective is, you know, in a, in a tightly controlled enterprise environment, you know, that sort of, kind of unchecked channel adoption represents a real mm-hmm. risk. And I was mm-hmm. wondering if you had a perspective on how to, deal with that in the university setting, considering what you had just said about, you know, kind of managing what are essentially independent contractors. Um, you know, it's yeah. not, not that top down command and control, uh, structure. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, it's, it, it's always a, a conversation around comparative risk. Um, so if I have a professor who wants to use Slack, um, one, I can't stop them from using Slack. What I can do is provide them with information about the relative risks of using Slack and then leave it to them to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Where from a from an institutional perspective, I get into questions like, well, what kind of data are you going to be sharing over those channels? And there may be sort, sort, types of data that, uh, that I'm absolutely not going to want them to share over those channels and, and I will insert myself or I will, I will make sure that the governance structures around those decisions or taking those things into account. Um, but in general, um, you know, one instructor wanting to use Slack, uh, if, if Slack is, is or is not an approved uh, university tool, um, is not where I'm going to be most worried. Um, what's, what's interesting is if, if in universities you've got, of course, security and then you've got privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those two disciplines definitely overlap a lot in the university space. Um, this isn't just about consent. Uh, it's about autonomy of students. Um, and so you, you really have to get into the why does somebody want to do it? What are they hoping to get out of it? And sometimes if in a research university, the answer is 
I don't know yet. I want to be able to experiment with it. I want to be able to do research on mm-hmm. it. And I won't know until I've done that research what the answer to that question is. So a lot of the the traditional security methodologies of saying, well, what's the business purpose? And does the business purpose match the ROI or the relative risk of this activity gets turned on its head in this environment? So you've got to allow it. Um, and and you've got to sort of try and trim the sails around, you know, where, where the the where the riskiest behaviour is, uh, and go after that. Is, is there any uh, similarity between that approach of, um, you know, allowing channel adoption and com- and comparative risk modelling to your experience in the private sector? Yeah, I think. Um, <laughs> It's sort of interesting. I actually think universities in some ways are much more pragmatic and much more ahead of the curve in recognizing that people bring them whole, their whole selves to their job. Mm-hmm. They always have. Um, so even in the most structured of private sector institutions, there were people that were told, if you don't like it, you can leave. And then there were people that were told, well, you're a very important person. And if you really want it, we will make a way for it to happen. Right. And ultimately, it happened anyway. The difference at a university is we we sort of take the approach that um, if you think as an individual, you've got a business purpose for this, um, we're going to hear you out about what that what that purpose is, mm-hmm. um, and we're going to do our best to accommodate that, as as opposed to some more structured uh, ways of thinking about that in other in other sectors. Um, so we've always dealt with large amounts of both BYOD and shadow IT on campus, mm-hmm. um, and and we've been building our security strategies around that assumption right from the very beginning, as opposed to saying, well, I work for a bank and we've locked ourselves down completely. And of course we don't have this, whatever, weirdness. No, you have that weirdness. Right. You're just not acknowledging it in your, in your structure. We acknowledge it in our structure. Yes. That's, that's a very interesting point about factoring in, you know, we're taking into account shadow IT as a significant part of our security structure, because I mean, we would make the argument that you know, we've talked to security professionals who have one perception of their perimeter or their controls. And, mm-hmm. you know, after we come in and we do an analysis, they're just unaware that the channel adoption has been occurring because people just don't tell them, you know, if, right. you know, we had a, <laughs> a, a, a client where the sales team was using WhatsApp in an overseas market because that is the primary means of communication for their clients. And, yeah. You know, once they found out, they're like, you can't use WhatsApp. We can't, we can't secure it. And they're like, okay, do you want me to make my sales quota? Yes or no. <laughs> you know, so trying to yeah. balance that business reality with some perception of trying to create kind of the perfect security space around an organization is, is a conflict we run into frequently. Right. And, and the challenge for me as a CISO in this environment is how do you explain that to regulators and cyber insurers and so forth mm-hmm. that come come from that other uh, that other way of thinking of of it's an expectation that you know exactly what your perimeter is all the time um, higher ed has and k through 12 certainly has has rarely been in that situation mm-hmm. not never but rarely or at least 
not holistically in that situation. We, we acknowledge that there are some things where we're going to know where our edge is and we accept that there are some things where we're going to know where our edge, we're not going to know where our edge is and we adjust again accordingly. Um, but, you know, we'll have cyber insurers that will come in and will say, you know, what's your vulnerability management policy? And I'll tell them because I have one. Um, and then they'll build a, a cyber insurance policy based on the assumption that everybody's following that policy. Right. Well, um, you know, where it's important we are, <laughs> but, you know, tell Target uh, to right from the beginning that they should have thought about their third-party HVAC vendor as critically important in their supply chain, and they would have laughed at you until the breach happened, right? So, right, you're being asked to predict have, you know, the future, yeah. <laughs> like all, all possible yeah. outcomes. All possible outcomes, and th this is what our regulations look like. This is what the FTC expects. This is what, um, you know, our, our, again, our, our cyber insurers are, are, tr are grappling with. Um, and uh, and, and it, especially when you're dealing with startup companies and so forth, those edge lines are, are very blurry. Um, so I, I don't envy my regulator partners and my... <laughs> And my cyber insurers, it's a tough place to be. Yes, in in some ways, it seems as though you know the act, the mindset. It's not even the actual regulations themselves, or even the rules inside of companies themselves. It's the actual mindset about how you even construct those rules has not kept pace yes. with the way no. we now use technology. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Um, so I want to turn um, our attention to some sort of like sort of quote unquote harder cybersecurity matters. So we've um, seen recently an uptick in the um, number of nation state actors targeting universities mm -hmm. specifically because those they're perceived to be softer targets than, you know, trying to go after a government contractor. So, you know, let's hack yeah. MIT instead of Northrop Grumman because they're more prepared. Um, or because the university space is, you know, decentralized and, and it's maybe easier to to fish somebody in some random part of the university and work your way through the network. Um, yeah. So could you talk a little bit about, we've talked about the research value um, that's at mm. Ohio State University, but has there been any preparations or contingency plans for kind of APT level um, intrusions? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, sometimes I think private sector might be surprised because all the things you just talked about is what you do see in the news. But but this has been going on for a super long time mm -hmm. um, in the higher education space. So, again, that we what we have to do a lot of is segmentation of our environment. So there are a lot of security controls going on around uh, research that that is uh, restricted in one way, shape, or form. Um, we are certainly very conscious of the kinds of research that nation states might be most interested in mm -hmm. in going after. Um, and you know, it's not just weapon systems. It's it it can be everything from well, there's lots of things. You know, you can read certain nation states five or ten year plans, and you can guess. Where, what kind of research that they might be most interested in? Indeed, bio, so, yeah, biotech and and farming technology are on are on oh, yeah. China's uh, list lately. I mean, you, yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, a lot of countries are dealing with food insecurity or climate change or whatever 
Um, and there's a lot happening in universities across the world in terms of that kind of research. So, um, so, so those things are happening. And universities as a whole are very um, close to um, various uh, national agencies that are that are involved in um, national protection kinds of activities mm-hmm. that uh, that that help us manage that risk. It's been going on for quite some time. Okay. And then um, kind of a subset of that question is uh, lately we have seen some of those intrusions uh, come via social media, either going through VIPs or what we uh, colloquially call here at Safeguard Cyber MVPs, which is the most vulnerable people, which tend to be mid-level people who may not have their guard up or may not have, you know, a security team managing their accounts for them. Um, So, so with that in mind, I think most companies are thinking about brand damage. You know, you don't want uh, Jamie Dimon's Twitter account hacked because it's just, it could be Mm -hmm. embarrassing, but from this Mm. uh, angle of, research and IP theft. Um, could you talk a little bit about how Ohio State University is, is protecting it, you know, high value individuals or sort of key researchers? So I'm not going to go into tremendous detail about that for no, obvious reasons, <laughs> but, um, but to be able to say, you know, when we, when we look at um, university leadership, I don't think there's a lot of difference between what you see on campus versus what you would see in the private sector. Um, the kinds of threats that we see there typically tend to be um, financially driven mm-hmm. kinds of threats that you would see anywhere. Um, you know, somebody spoofing a, an important person's email address to to try and get somebody else in the thread to send them some money or, mm-hmm. you know, th- those kinds of normal financial fraud kinds of email business compromises and so forth. We see all of those too. Um it's a, it is a little bit separate from what we would see in the research. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're probably not going to try and hack the president to get to research information because, right. frankly, the president isn't involved in the research to that degree. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, they are. We are seeing specifically higher ed kinds of business email compromises targeted at lead researchers. Um, and we again, we're aware of what those are, and we're putting if we haven't already, we're putting things into play to, to try and address those. Um, and and this is where there there is sort of a in a higher education space a, a soft cultural target in that the whole point of doing research in these areas is to collaborate internationally on these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, basic training and awareness things that says don't respond to emails from somebody you don't know has the <laughs> impact of shutting down research. Right. So I can't say that. I can't say that. So ha- so then, then where do you go with that? So um, we're working on those kinds of strategies. Yes, and, and also I think – we have been working for a number of years um, against this idea or kind of par- social paradigm that you should build up your influence, you should use social media, you should, you know, if you're a tenured professor, it could become a powerful platform for you to either talk mm-hmm. about the university or, you know, improve the standing mm-hmm. of the university, you're at a conference, what have you. Um, yep. So, and that's true of a lot of places, that's true of uh, private companies as well. And so, and now seeing the risks that come from social, you're now being asked to 
kind of check that impulse that you've basically uh, acculturated to for like the last six, seven years. Um, so mm-hmm. it's, I think it's a tight rope for professors to walk. Oh, you want to demonstrate value uh, by any means to your colleagues if you're trying to get tenure, mm-hmm. and that might include social media. But now, yes, yeah, similar to what you were saying, you're now being asked, well, now maybe you don't want as many followers because maybe <laughs> those followers are bad actors. It, it, it's complicated because a lot of the time, most of the research that's being done across universities is research that's being done with public data sets anyway. Um, so, you know, that, that it's one of the things that's different about higher ed and research data is its criticality and its sensitivity varies depending on where in the research life cycle you are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in finance or healthcare, you say this is a healthcare record. It's always a healthcare record. Therefore, it always requires this level of protection. In research, you may be collaborating on public data sets with people for 15 years and then, oh, you find something and for the next 12 months, you want it to be super confidential before it becomes a patent or a paper or whatever. Right. And then once it's published, you have to be able to provide all that information out to the world again so that they can decide whether or not your research conclusions are valid. So there there is a life cycle of confidentiality and and security that goes into research that doesn't happen in any other kinds of data and social media plays into that as well yes that's interesting it's um, like a moving target you know it's you know yeah, benign, benign for one part sensitive for another then public record yeah. another time yeah yeah it's great it, it, sound, <laughs> it sounds like things are just constantly changing so where do you see the role of the CISO going in the next five years? The role of the CISO is different than, than other security roles. And so one of the things I think we do badly as a, as a profession is that we say, we use a word like CISO or we use a word like hacker or whatever, and we use it as if it represents the entire industry. The role of the CISO is to be able to provide university or institutional or company leadership with the the means of making good business risk decisions inclusive of cyber and technology and information risk. And that's our role. I don't think that's going to change over the next five years. I think what the risks are will change over the next five years and whether that's 5G or machine learning or artificial intelligence or pick your quantum computing, whatever, um, that a CISO is going to have to be able to translate what those technology means in terms of business risk. But we do that today. It's just with a different set of technologies. So the, the underlying role, I don't think is going to change dramatically, I think, or the purpose of the role, I don't think it's going to change dramatically. I think the detail of the role is going to change. And we'll see where that goes. Um, I, I'm I don't think in the next five years you're going to see a preponderance of CISOs sitting reporting directly to a president or a CEO, but I I do think you're going to see them get much more access to that person. Right, they may not they may not report directly into them, but they may be required for board level reviews or something like that. Yeah, and you're seeing them already with board level reviews. I think I think my point is more operationally on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. If a CEO or a, or a president does not have a personal relationship with their CISO, um, that will be a problem for an organization. So, um, uh-huh. interesting. And, and today I don't think they, they holistically do. Okay. And I, yes, I think 
We have seen in um, the private sector, the challenge for some of the CISOs we talk to is, again, this one of the culture is beginning to shift or has already shifted in a way mm-hmm. that runs counter to how they came up in the industry. So, for example, the, for the longest time when we were talking about perimeters and kind of building these fortresses around an organization, um, I think this CISO or the entire security team was kind of like the team that was encouraged to err on the side of caution and mm-hmm. to um, be kind of the team that might say no. I don't want, I don't really like that in terms of its negative connotation, but they were the ones that protected the company from shooting itself in the foot, essentially. But now, right. um, with a lot of companies moving entire operations, front office and back office, into cloud environments, there's this rush to what is quote unquote digital transformation, which is now putting pressure on the CISO to be more than the department of yes. Like in other words, they're, they're now being asked to shift and think of security as a way that's like proactive and drives business rather yeah. than, than uh, the, the people who sort of just naysay everything. And I think that's a, a challenge yeah. for CISOs. It's a challenge, but I think it's a good thing um, because underneath that, what it's reflecting is an acknowledgement that security is not an IT issue. Security cannot be owned by the security department, which was the assumption before, right? Right. I, you know, I, I was interviewed way back when in my career for a security position where someone said, I don't know how you sleep at night being responsible for the security for the company. I'm like, I'm not responsible for the security of the company. I'm responsible for making sure that you and your teams are handling the security that you introduce in an appropriate way. Right. Mm-hmm. But the, the mentality of the corporation was that's not my problem. That's Helen's problem or Joe's problem or whoever. And and so when that happened, a security person had no choice but to say, you shouldn't do that. You can't do that. What do you mean you're doing that? What are you you're crazy? And so we got this reputation of the team of no. And now people are like, oh, you know, security is a part and parcel of every single individual's both professional career and personal life. We are making security decisions every day we pick up our iPhone and we decide to do something with it. And we are assuming responsibility for our security as individuals every single time. Why is it any different at work? And so now we're in a situation where a security person can go, you're willing to take the risk and accept the consequences of this risk. Let me help you understand how big a risk that is and what you can do to mitigate the worst of that, and then let's carry forward. And I think that's a much healthier conversation to have than we used to be forced into having before. Yes, and that's so it's, it's, yeah, and it's a it's fascinating that you are definitely not the first person we've talked to that has seen that change. That you know, security used to just be that's IT's problem, uh, and now talking yeah. about how it must be woven into like the fabric of every business decision or every team. Right. And it sounds like you're right. ma- you're empowering people to also make it personal because it is security is personal for them when they're going into their iPhones. That's right. It definitely makes a big difference. And, and one of the things we are doing here at Ohio State with our security training and awareness program is really starting with the individual first. So, you know, our training isn't just this is what a HIPAA record is and this is how you have to protect it in the corporation and this is where you report it when you lose it and that kind of stuff. It is, you know, 
how do you make sure that all those photos you've been taking are backed up appropriately? And, and how do you protect your kids online from weirdness? And, oh, by the way, how do you protect your yourself from your kids on your home network when they're doing weird stuff online at home and that, that's the same network where you're doing your banking? You know, if we can have those kinds of conversations, it leads to healthier security outcomes in the office. Um, and so far, it's been a quite a successful approach to take for us here. Oh, that's yes, that's very interesting. That's good. That's great. Um, okay, so we'll start to to wrap things up, and we like to ask this question occasionally because, and you you kind of brought it up in uh, talking about how someone once posed the question to you, "How do you sleep at night?" So, in that vein, we'll we'll start on the dark side. Um, yeah. With all of your experience in information security and what you see. Uh, on a day-to-day basis, what is it that that keeps you up at night? Is it a specific threat? Is it a type of technology? Is it a process um, issue? What is the thing that kind of, I guess, motivates you to keep um, pushing against challenges? Uh, actually, I think, I mean, I have two answers to that question because they're equally consuming of my brain power at the moment. <laughs> One is I worry about cyber threat in terms of resiliency of corporations but also of of cities and states and nations. So I am worried about the potential for cyber attacks on our infrastructure and the ability for the impact on life safety. I think up until this point, a lot of people have thought of cyber as something that happens inside your device and they're just now waking up to the fact that a cyber event can cause somebody to die, that can cause water to be um, contaminated, can cause power to go out, can cause pacemakers to fail. Um, And so this translation from the virtual world to the physical world of cyber events I think the impact to us from as a society can be really huge. Um, and so that's one area that, that I think is underappreciated, uh, again, by our politicians in particular. They're very concerned about data confidentiality, and that's a piece of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think that availability and impact of, of you know, really bad data integrity is 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 a problem that they they have underestimated at this point. So that's one. Yeah, that's a key distinction. I think more more philosophically, I'm um, I'm interested to see the role of security playing in the ethics of IT. So you know, as we do more and more with not only artificial intelligence but deep learning, being able to secure the structures that do those activities so that we can trust those things. We're putting more and more trust in the algorithms of the technology that we're using. Um, and if we can't secure those things very well, um, again, the, the impact to individuals is going to be really huge. And so the, the, the ethics of IT and the role of security in that is very interesting to me at the moment. And um, yeah, I, I stay awake at night thinking about that kind of stuff because I'm a geek. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay. Well, we'll end on a positive note, which is the flip side of that question, which is, you know, given your, your travel or experience at conferences or just professional experience, Mm. what is it that gives you the most hope? 
when you're when we're looking at information yeah. security? Actually, one of the reasons I really like working in higher ed is because I see the students and how they're approaching things. And um, I'm in a fortunate position that in addition to being a CISO, I'm also uh, an instructor here at the university. So I have classes. Um, and my classes because are about Because you don't have enough security. to do. <laughs> yeah, right on. It's fun. <laughs> so my, um, my classes are not in the computer science department, actually, though. They're in, they're in the College of Arts and Sciences in International Studies. And we talk about cyber risks and, and those kinds of things. I'm very, uh, I'm hopeful. I have, I, there are signs of hope in that students are able to take all of these things that I've, it's taken me 25 years to learn and to be able to synthesize this information and, and be able to use it in a, in a positive way. So, you know, when, when students are asking me, how do they get into the cybersecurity field? Some of them are getting into, they want to get into the field because they want to geek out on algorithms and, and Python scripts and, and those kinds of things. But a lot of them are getting into the field because they see it as a real foundational element of a well-functioning society for us to get this right. And that, that brings me all kinds of hope. <laughs> No, oh, that is a great note to end on. Yes, yes that's, that's fantastic. That is that is good to hear. Um, well, Helen, thank you very much for taking the time out of your no doubt busy schedule uh, to jump on the phone. Um, it was a it was a pleasure talking with you. Yes, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. Well, um, have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you. All right. Bye now. Bye. Well, that was interesting. Yes, it was. Um, I think when I when I first invited Helen to the podcast, I had failed to consider just how large and complex the threat surface was for a major university. I think that was just really fascinating to hear how distributed and fragmented that um, that surface is. Yeah, and what really sticks out to me is the way that she thinks about the humans, the employees and people that are using the technology that they know it best and educates them on cybersecurity with that in mind. Yeah, and I think the parallels to the private sector aren't one-to-one in terms of the infrastructure, but certainly some of the behavior patterns are. Um, great. Well, some news that we are watching this week. Um, just before the Memorial Day weekend, we noticed that CrossFit Incorporated suspended its use of Facebook and Instagram um, over disagreement about what they perceive to be arbitrary deplatforming of a particular user group. They go on to cite a number of other concerns, and I think it struck me as noteworthy because it's a very large organization that has an extremely devoted organic following. Um I'm not sure what their paid media spend was, but I do know that they were a first adopter of Facebook Live and were using it to broadcast um, their CrossFit Games qualifying events and even parts of the games themselves. Um, so it just it struck me as, as something to note that a brand with that much social strength would uh, willingly and on uh, principle quit the two platform, the two major social media platforms. Yeah, I wonder if this is the start of another hashtag delete Facebook movement. 
Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll see. They said that it's a suspension and not an outright ban, but we will uh, continue to keep track of what's going on there. Well, while we're on the topic of social media, IBM Security Intelligence put out an article this week about how their X-Force team, which let's all acknowledge is an awesome name. Awesome name. Is using social media to gather information and execute social engineering campaigns so easily that they're even able to break into physical companies, their actual location. Yeah, I thought a lot of it on the surface seems obvious, but when you take into account all of the information that is shared on social that they can glean what security badges look like from selfies, that they can look at common hashtags like internship or first day at work, that they can also just look to marketing and comms content, like a day in the life videos that they can even glean actual passwords. I think it's just really telling and amazing. We've written about how it can be used to social engineer employees uh, to gain access through social channels, but to see that you could gain physical access to a building is is truly extraordinary. And I think a good point that you raise is that this workforce, the workforce that is now commonly entering internships, is the most socially adept and aware group that a lot of these practices that would be seen as revealing sensitive information or insecure is just second nature to them. Of course, it's their first day at work. Of course, they're going to take a selfie with their badge showing their friends. And so it's kind of a whole new communications regime might be required to help educate that particular segment of the workforce. Um, Anyway, we will return, uh, as always, in two weeks' time. But in the meantime, if you've uh, liked what you've heard, give us uh, a rating on any of the popular podcast listening platforms that you are using. Uh, Subscribe or even throw us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, this is the Zero Hour brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. Signing off. Stay safe. Stay safe.